Hey, good morning, good morning. Let's go ahead and get started today. So we're going to finish up Colossians chapter 4. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see if you, uh, if you, hopefully everyone has a handout. And if you turn to Colossians chapter 4, he sort of rounds it out today. Um, has his final, final greetings and uh, some further instructions. And I thought what I would do is the, uh, the final greetings, um, I mean, it all has a, a good purpose. For our, for our purposes, I thought I would take a look at the first few verses and then leap into something in the book of Acts. And let, but let's read it. So we'll read Colossians chapter 4. And I think what I'll do then next week is I'll do something topically uh, since we're kind of winding down. But let's go ahead and read this. Colossians chapter 4. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Eustace. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. 
and say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And there is the text. When we think about this, um, when I was thinking about this, this chapter, you see a lot of the early church's sense of community and how they are drawn together. And that is a very important part of the church, as we know. Um, Paul is in prison, and so he has the typical struggles of being, being under guard, right? And there's a lot of loneliness. Spiritually, it's difficult. And yet, he has others with him. And uh, there's a lot of communication, and that's very important. Yes. I just have kind of a logistical question. So yeah. If, uh, if they're being jailed because of their activities, how is it that they're able to write letters? You know, you think that it would be hard for them to be together that they would be restricted. I'm just curious how how they were able to do that. Um, you know, there were things like um, house arrest and things like that. Uh, so that's one one thing. Um, but given the, the situation, it was allowed for people to visit and then they could pass things along. And, um, you know, in some cases, the prisons, you know, it depended on where it was, but in some cases, the prisons were, were pretty rudimentary, you know, and so people could come and go a little bit. Not the prisoners, but other people. So, yeah, it, it's... Um, it's kind of an interesting thing the way that works. And I'm trying to remember now what they said about this particular situation. Um, if somebody sent, if they sent somebody to Paul, who was that? Was that Timothy or Titus or somebody? Somebody was sent to him by the church. I think he was, and maybe because he was a Roman citizen, he got maybe special yeah special privileges yeah the the uh, lutheran study bible here just kind of has this brief footnote that says he was um aristarchus from thessalonica he was probably with paul while he was under house arrest and attended to his needs so perhaps that's what it was in this case yeah so, yeah, good question. That's a good one. Um, what I think is, is fascinating and, and worth talking about is the sense of early Christian mission. And you see this in verses 2 through 6. So take a look at these verses again. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person." So, you know, this is a letter to the church, 
And so, you know, he's, he's encouraging all the Christians in different directions. Um, one is prayer. Uh, one is witness. Um, one is how to walk in wisdom and how to speak. So there's a bunch of things going on in there. So, you know, Paul points, points out uh, these things for us to realize the dynamic that, that characterizes so many people outside the church. Um, it's not easy to talk to people outside the church. And so what, what he's saying is, you know, think about how you speak, um, you know, be gentle. Uh, but so let's take a look at, at some of what's happening here. And I would say um, it's on page two where we, where we really start to begin. And as, you know, as we think about what do people go through outside the church, um, you know, I, I've had a couple of things in, in my family recently where um, I'll just tell you briefly. So my dad, who is from the West Coast, um, my grandmother, his mother, um, she was taking my dad and my uncle to like Earth Day rallies in Phoenix in the 1950s. So that kind of tells you kind of how they were way back when. And so my, my grandmother in the 50s left the Methodist church and she went to the Unitarian church. Is anybody familiar with the Unitarians, Unitarian church? You know, it's more environmental, more concerned with, um, you know, earth and things going on in our world and, you know, yeah, and so that was kind of how my my dad and my uncle were raised. And I, I get along really well with my uncle, who still lives out in Sun City West. And he and I have talked for decades on the phone. And, of course, he knows I'm a pastor, and he's very respectful of that. His ideas are very much geared from a life of being in the Unitarian Church. And then my uncle married a woman from Brooklyn who was a Jew, okay? And so, you know, talking to them was always very interesting. And I was always very careful because his ideas are so, in in many ways, very different from from mine. And you know, he would ask me questions and he would often give me his opinions on things which were totally way different from mine. And, and I, I, I learned to just be very gentle and do a lot of listening. And I tried not to prod or push. And so anyway, a week and a half ago, my, my aunt, who was a Jew, she died. Okay, and he, he and I talked on the phone and he kept talking about how, you know, good of a person she was and so she's got to be, 
you know, up crossing the pearly gates and, and all this stuff. And, and I just listened, you know, because she never did really, she never showed any interest in Jesus. And when, when I did talk about it, um, her response was she could never turn her back on the faith of her ancestors and her parents and her grandparents. And that is very important to her. And, but I never pushed my uncle ever. I would just always gently try to talk about Jesus and talk about the gospel and talk about the life of faith and the forgiveness of sins, right? All the stuff that you know. And when I talked to him then like a week ago, shortly after his wife died, um, he just out of the blue says that he is going to start going to this Lutheran congregation in Sun City West. And he said he's going to leave the Unitarian faith. And it was amazing to me because this is a probably a 20-year conversation, you know? And, and you, you know how this feels, right? Um, often when you're talking to people who are of very different philosophies and teachings and backgrounds, you, wanna, you want so much to tell them right away, right? Like, leave that behind. Go this direction. And, but you know that there's danger in doing that, right? There's this, this very good possibility that they might get upset and you might turn them away or turn them off. And so there's something in this in Colossians 4 about gentleness. And also, on page 1... You don't have to go back to page one, but you can look at it a little bit later. People do really struggle with the perceived silence of God. People who are outside of the church, they really, in many cases, are not certain about where they stand. And, you know, maybe you remember hearing about this from the other pastors a time or two. But, you know, C.S. Lewis, who had been an atheist before he became a Christian, he had once said that, I'm paraphrasing, something to the effect of, just as uh, a Christian sometimes wonders if there really is a God, the atheist also wonders, maybe there really is a God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and there's great trembling in that, in that prospect for an atheist, uh, because to not know the gospel and to think that you have to craft your own path of moral goodness and excellence is a frightening thing, and so, you know, like my uncle the Unitarian, for him, it's always been, he's a very intelligent guy. He's a very thoughtful guy. And he's, he always tried to mask his worries 
about the afterlife for, well, I try to be a good person. You know, I try to do the right things. But then the evidence is stacked up against us, right? And, and so, you know, even a person outside the church will struggle with all the evidence being stacked against them. And so when we look here at Colossians 4, verse 2 and following, in verse 2 it literally, well, so it says, continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So this is the posture of the church as we know. He's, he's, as he's talking about the mission of the church and, and the, the apostles going out with the gospel, he's saying, hey, pray. Devote yourself to this. Devote yourself to a life of prayer because there is much good in this. When we feel helpless, we pray. And this is what I did for my uncle for these 20 years is I prayed for him every day. And the Lord hears our prayers. So this is an encouragement for all of us that, you know, those people that you love or the people in your life or friends that seem so far away or they seem to be going in a different direction and you feel like, well, there's not a whole lot I can do or there's not a whole lot I can say, that's okay. Don't burden your conscience in these situations where you just don't know what to say. Pray for them. Continue steadfastly. Give attention to this, to this in your life of faith. And then in this being watchful in it with thanksgiving, being watchful in Eucharist is the Greek. Yeah, being watchful in Eucharist. And, you know, that word Eucharist in Greek, the charis part is gift, grace. And then the prefix you, so eucharist, eucharist. So charis is gift or grace. The U on the front of it is an emphasizer. Really good. Really good grace. Really powerful, you know, really intense grace. And this word for being watchful is what is used for the, the parable of the, the ten virgins. And in Matthew chapter 25, and the five wise virgins are those who watch. It's the same Greek word. So there's an alertness. And so the Christian posture, what Paul is saying is, in the Christian posture, look around. Be attentive. Be aware and this is in conjunction with a life of prayer. So, you know, to be watchful, to be aware, would then also imply 
a bit of slowing down, right? Just, you know, a little bit of pausing, taking a step back here and there, and just kind of assessing situations. What's the temperature, right? What's the temperature in the room? What's the temperature among the people that you know and see and love and care for? And gauging the temperature, the you know, the spiritual situation then assists us in our prayers. And so then, if we're watchful, then our prayers are a little more deliberate. And you will find comfort in that, I think. I have. Um, when, when I am rolling through prayers quickly and, I, and I'm not able to give attention, I am less at ease. But when I can stop and think about a person and I can just take the time to think about how I will pray for that person to our Lord, that actually eases my anxiety too. Because... You know what I mean? It just sort of, there's this holy rumination uh, as we pray for someone. And it creates a calm even in us. Because sometimes we feel it too, right? Just like you, does anybody here feel other people's stress? (laughs) No, not here, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you feel other people's stress, to pray for them uh, is, helps relieve our own stress. And then, of course, you're giving it to the Lord, and you know that the Lord hears your prayers, and so it creates a calm. And so, you know, you're doing what you can and then you leave it with the Lord, and then you keep going. And I find that to be very helpful in, uh, in thinking about Christian brothers and sisters and also people outside the church. Yes? It seems like Jesus gave us so many examples of doing that himself. You know, like so often when he invented the large crowd, then they, like the Gospels will say he went off by himself to pray. It's almost like it was probably so much for him to be taking on and seeing all the sinfulness and his need. And it seems like he did this very effective. He would then go off by himself and pray, and then he'd be able to go forward and continue doing what he was doing. But it's like he kind of gave us that example. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great example. Yeah, the, precisely. Yeah, thank you. I was just thinking how, like, to be, to be somebody that feels somebody else's stress, you're usually somewhat of an empathetic person or sympathetic person. And so it's like, on one side, you're very caring about, about people, you care about them. But actually, like, the, the bad side of that is that, like, you can tend to think of yourself as everybody's savior or everybody's, like, you're trying to fix everything for everybody else. Yeah. So it's like, in prayer, I mean, the easiest probably example is, like, with your own kids. It's like in prayer, it's, it's reminding you that you're not the one that's the Savior or you're not the one that's fixing it. Yeah. So that makes sense.
It does. Then, like, like I like the word that you use, the word holy rumination. Yeah. Many times it's like unholy rumination, but holy rumination means that God is like present in that. Yeah. That swirl. Exactly. Yeah. And that can, it, so you mentioned the one side, like one side of this is we could think we're the actual savior that we're helping everybody and, you know, everybody needs us and all this, right? That's one side. The other side is um, Dr. Bev Yonke from Doxology. She has this perfect phrase for pastors where you are a, a quivering mass of availability. <laughs> Where you're just like, you know, you're, you're shot, right? You're just like, you got nothing left, but you feel like you got to keep helping, right? But you're depleted. And, you know, that is not just pastors, though. You know, everybody can, every Christian can become a quivering mass of availability. And then you're not really helping anybody. And, and yet, and then you are, yourself are empty, and so, you know, this perspective of being watchful, being prayerful, um, helping where you can through prayer, and then moving on. You know, there's so many dynamics to this because when you're praying and you're taking, t- taking it to the Lord, um, in a sense, you're recharging as you as you unload and move things to the Lord and then of course go to Eucharist and when you do this it's a way for you to recharge and for you to heal because all these things I mean they do burden they do burden people um, quite a bit and um, so that's, that's something to think about in terms of watchfulness and prayer. Yes. So I was listening to a podcast this week and kind of every, echoing everything that everybody has said here. It said that when you pray for somebody else, the Lord answers your prayers. And I thought about that. And so with my mom being in hospital, we kept okay days now. So if something happens, it's okay. And then, you know, later on, check on her and it's okay and then at the end of the day it's an okay day yeah but after thinking about that it is he has answered my prayers to give me enough strength to get through the next one so yeah you're praying for your kid but he's answering your prayers to get through the day or the moment or something else so when you think about that yeah you just said it's kind of wow yeah you need to pray yeah it is very helpful and, you know, it gets to that holy rhythm, and a holy rhythm is comforting, right? Rhythm is actually very comforting. And so, yeah, that's very good, too. Thank you. So then, um, you know, as we think about all of this, then, if we think about what Paul is saying here, he is... He's saying, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. 
And then in verse 5, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Because to recognize, to be wise, is to recognize the spiritual dynamics of, of what is going on in the world, in our lives, and in the lives of the people around us. And the Bible, as you know, is full of language of light and darkness. And James 1.17, at the top of page 2, reads, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So what he's saying is, any darkness is the absence of God's holiness. And there is no darkness with with the Lord. But there is darkness in the world, and there's a lot of it. And sometimes it's very close to home. And so Paul, he is recognizing, without using the words light and darkness here, he is recognizing that the church's mission is very important because there is a lot of spiritual darkness swirling around and the church is the beacon of light that brings the gospel, that brings the light of Christ. And you, know, you think about the fact that there's a place and it's the altar and the altar is there where the Eucharist is, the gospel is, and that light shines out and goes to all the world. And you see that with the so-called Great Commission. And so outside is darkness, and that's then where mission happens, bringing love, mercy, witness, and service. In the church is light, liturgy, love, Eucharist, prayer, holy contemplation, sacraments, And in the Bible, we do see the outside. We see examples of the outside and everything that goes on on the outside. And then we see the temple in the Old Testament. And then Jesus is the temple not made with hands. And then the church with the Eucharist. Psalm 36, verse 9, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 5, for you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor darkness. What I would like to do is, as we think about these verses, and Paul is talking about how we walk, how we pray, how we speak, then let's go to an example in Acts chapter 13. There's a lot of scripture in this handout, but we'll never get through it all. So just go to Acts chapter 13. And this then is on the last page of the handout. And this is, this is an early example in Acts chapter 13 of the church's life in the midst of this dynamic. So... 
you know, Paul's talking about the dynamic as he's in prison, as he writes to the church in Colossae. But here, here you have a hands-on picture of what the church looked like in those days. So in Acts chapter 13, let's start at verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So now first, look at, look at the scene. They are, as it says in Greek, in the liturgy. And the church is gathered together. They're worshiping, they're praying. And then the, the Holy Spirit sets apart Barnabas and Saul to go out to do mission. And there's the laying on of hands. And then they are sent off. And when we look at this, <clears throat> there is a contrast. And I think, you know, Luke, who was mentioned at the, at the end of Colossians, there, he is the one writing this. And he is giving us the picture of light and darkness. He's giving us a picture of the church and the world. And it's the same today. So inside the church are fellow saints and the faithful. Outside the church, evangelists, missionaries, etc. It begins in the church gathered with Christians. The Holy Spirit gives sense to it all and sets the stage for what happens next. So there's a sense of holy movement. Mission springs from the sanctuary and goes out to the world. And then, of course, the goal is to move, to draw people back into the sanctuary. And you see some psalms here. I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Your way, O God, is holy. And then Psalm 68, 24, your procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. And by the way, so the word mass, uh, we don't use it often in the Lutheran church, but the mass, right? Um, so the mass, the word mass in Latin comes from missa or mitta, and it's the same word for mission that we get for mission, the mission of the church. Isn't that interesting? Who would ever think that? But the idea is you come into the mass and you come face to face with Jesus through the word and the sacraments. And you are fed Christ's body and blood and then dismissal, the dismissal at the end, dismissal, dismiss, miss, 
mitta, missa. So the idea is the dismissal, you receive the benediction after having received the body and blood of Christ, and then the church is sent out. And so the sense of mass is that you receive Christ, you receive the light of Christ in the liturgy, and then the church is sent out into the world. And that's the sense of the word mass. Isn't that interesting? And so it really does encompass this comprehensive notion of Christ is our light who shines in the darkness. His light is, shines in our lives as he feeds us and forgives us and loves us. And then that light goes out to the world. And we see this in Acts chapter 13. So there's a good historic reason for the use of the term mass and, and how it kind of fits into the, the grand perspective. So Paul and Barnabas, there they are inside the confines of the church's worship life. The Holy Spirit is doing his work, feeding, loving, caring for the Christians. Then they're sent out. And then what happens next is very much in line with what we see in Colossians chapter 4. So now there's different parties to this. So there's one side is darkness, one side is light, and then there's a person in the middle. Okay. So now let's take a look at this as we continue on in Acts 13 starting in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. So this is Mark, the evangelist, John. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, just pause here for just a second. This, this happens a few times where, as I've mentioned before, at the arrest of Jesus, right, you have Jesus, you have Pontius Pilate, right? And then you have Jesus, and then who do you have over here? Barabbas, right? And, you know, there's imposters. And this is the thing about darkness, is with darkness, darkness is an imposter, Oftentimes, darkness parades as God, but differently. And so here's Jesus. Jesus is the son of the father, right? And then over here, you have Pontius Pilate. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's, right? He's caught up in this mess, and he really just wants to stay back on the Mediterranean coast where he usually stays. 
and he has to go into this crazy mess in Jerusalem because of the feast and the you know million of people there. But there's Barabbas. And of course, as I've said before, Barabbas means son of the father, right? Son of the father. So you have the real son of the father, Jesus, and then you have Barabbas, the son of the father, who's an imposter. And the crowd goes for the imposter, right? Release to us Barabbas. Well, in a similar way, you can't help but wonder, Bar-Jesus, you know, son of Joshua, son of Jesus, right? Son of Jesus. So you almost wonder, is his name a play on this whole notion of being an imposter? Because the sons of light are the sons of Christ, right? Paul and Barnabas. And then you have Bar-Jesus, the magician. And this is a great example and picture of the church's life in the world. Now you have Sergius Paulus, and in the Greek text, in verse 7, it says he is a man of understanding, and the Greek word is uh, syntheto. And that would have been a word used for someone who was schooled in philosophy. So he, Sergius Paulus, is a thoughtful, powerful individual. And he likes to learn. And he wants to learn the ways of the Logos. So here's the thing. So Jesus is the Word made flesh, right? John's Gospel, John 1. Logos and Sarke, okay? Logos in the flesh. The Logos in Greek thought would have been philosophies of truth and life. And I think I put it on here at the bottom of the fourth page, the Greek word logos, or the Greek word uh, for syntheto, man of understanding, suggests that he is schooled in Greek philosophy. He wants to hear the logos, or the word of the apostles of Jesus. To him, to hear the logos from a philosophical perspective was to listen to a speech or the speech that sanctions a life of morality and goodness. So he wants to hear, it's very similar to the Mars Hill incident in Acts, where they want to hear a philosophy that might bring goodness to life. Because the idea in, in Greek thought is, a higher philosophy would lead to a better life. And so, you know, they would maybe detach that from God, but they wanted a good life. A good life of prosperity, a good life of ease, a good life of tranquility, 
a life of wisdom, right? A good, peaceful life. And Sergius Paulus wants to hear what Paul and Barnabas have to say. So in a sense, like if you had, you know, if you had a piece of paper and you wanted to draw a picture, you could have Bar-Jesus, the imposter, and he, that side is darkness. Then on the other side, you have Paul and Barnabas, who are sons of Jesus, sons of light, so light and darkness. And then in the middle is Sergius Paulus. This is the picture of the church's mission to the world. We, and it's important, I think, to think about it this way. When we see people who are searching for truth, they might be very misled. It's important to think in these categories that that person is the one in the middle and their soul is hanging in the balance between light and darkness. Now, it happens sometimes among Christians where we'll hear someone talk about something that's just total craziness or maybe their practice of life is craziness and there is sometimes a knee-jerk reaction or a tendency to put them in the, the evil darkness camp. And, that, and we'll respond in a certain way if we put them in that darkness evil camp, right? Try to remember that they're the ones whose soul is hanging in the balance. It's the devil who's on the dark, that darkness side, right? And the magician. So Paul and Barnabas deal differently with Sergius Paulus than they do the magician. And I think that's important to remember here. So let's keep going. So verse 8, Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, opposed Paul and Barnabas, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And, you know, this stuff blows me away in Greek because, for example, in verse 8 here, the, uh, the Greek word is, is a philosophical word for um, dissuasion. Like if they are engaged in a Greek philosophical battle of of knowledge, the the magician is is working hard at his arguments to try to turn him away and into a different philosophy. And it's it's a very particular word, diastrepsi. It's it's a word so like my my dissertation is on protreptics, how to turn someone towards something. The Greek word here is the opposite word of protreptics. It's diastreptomai, okay? So it's to go in one direction or the other, to draw towards, to pull away. 
And so the magician is trying to pull him away. Evil tries to do that. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. And, you know, it's this Greek word is used for Jesus, like Jesus will be in a in the temple or be in a synagogue, and it, there'll be someone like a demon-possessed person, and then Jesus looks intently at him. It's like, it, this is like a soulful, it's like looking into the soul. It's like looking into the core of the person. And so this is what Jesus does in the Gospels. Like, when he sees someone in need or he sees a demon-possessed person, there's this, like, laser-sharp gaze right into the soul. A t- a ten- it's, uh, the Greek word is um, atenizo. And so Paul looks intently into the the soul of the magician. He sees him for what he really is. And then he says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now remember how I've talked about that before? The crooked path, the straight path. And, you know, there's all that language. Remember um, in Acts 8, um, is it Acts 8? Where Paul, uh, Saul is, is led to the apostle and he's to go to a street called Straight. You know, there's this whole leveling, right? Remember I talked about that, how like in Isaiah and in the Psalms that the Lord will lower the hills and raise up the valleys and make the way straight. A straight journey, a holy journey is straight. A wicked journey is crooked. And so, you know, John the Baptist, repent, make straight the way of the Lord, right? All this stuff is at work. It deals with the, the holy journey. Why must you make crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And these words in Greek, deceit and villainy, um, are important words because he is a distort. This this magician is a distorter of the truth. And so then it says in verse eleven, Saint Paul says, "And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you." And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. And so what happens is, this man is seeking someone to lead him by the hand. It's now the physical manifestation of his spiritual condition. So what's going on here is it's almost like a courtroom. You have Sergius Paulus who sits and observes. You have 
the wicked one who is battling on one side of the argument. Then you have the apostles who are, who are making a case on the other side of the argument. And Paul and Barnabas expose the magician for what he really is. And then he physically exhibits what his soul and his philosophy really does. He's lost. He's seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Darkness has come upon him. He cannot see. He cannot find his own way. And this is the true nature of things. And can you, I mean, you can just imagine, right? Paul knows what this feels like, right? Because he himself experienced it on the road to Damascus. And then we are told in verse 12, then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now notice, and this is a thing to remember, I, I, I think, that there's always a lot more going on in the scene than what is often explicitly told. So there's teaching going on too. The Greek word is didache, which is a technical term for catechesis. So they're teaching Paul about the gospel. Sergius Paulus. They're teaching Sergius Paulus about the gospel. And then there's evidence, and then they believe. Now, thinking about this, this is the life of the church. Um, the goal, of course, is that we're all drawn back into the sanctuary. When we think about early, early catechesis, and, and I'm thinking like 100s AD, the goal was always to lead into the church. Catechesis, like in, in those days, in the early days, in, Greek, in the days of Greek philosophy, you would have schools and the, the teacher would be the philosopher. And oftentimes it was an end in itself. You know, you had the philosopher, the teacher was, um, his, his, his reputation made or broke the school. And, but for the Christians, the goal was never that the school existed for itself or for the sake of the teacher or the philosopher, but it was always to lead back to Jesus, to lead to the church, to lead to the body of Christ. And in that way, you see like a person exists alone in darkness. They're ransomed and redeemed and pulled out and brought to Jesus. And when they're brought to Jesus, they're brought into the church, into the body of Christ. And so... Paul, in Colossians 4, he's begging for the church's prayers for help in the, in the apostolic mission. He is asking for these prayers to help govern them in wisdom, the church in wisdom. 
to be thoughtful about how they walk, how they journey. And there's gentleness, truth, mercy, patience. And we are filled with all the things that spring from Jesus himself. If you go, if you go to John chapter 17, verse 20... The prayer of Jesus is such a wonderful prayer and it, what it is doing is, is it's anticipating all this stuff that we see in the book of Acts and in the, in the church's life. And John 17, I should have brought the whiteboard out so I could uh, write this up on the board for you to show you the word order. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. What a wonderful string of verses. But in the Greek... And doggone it, I should have brought that board out. You know, I was, always, I was thinking to myself, do I need the board? No, I don't think so. Yep, I should have. Um, the Greek word order, you know, you can put these words in any kind of order. And the way it works is those who believe, so, so if you kind of had it, kind of put it on a board, right? You'd have the words, those who believe in me, and then... Well, those who believe. And then you would have through their word. And then you would have in me. So what, what Jesus does and what John does with word order is he has on the outside those who believe in me and in the middle through their word. So the idea is those who believe in me have the word in the center. So, and of course, the word would be Jesus, right? So Jesus is in the center. If you did a picture of the words, Jesus is in the center of those who believe. And so, you know, this is a picture of our life. Christ is the core and he is the source of life, I guess, would be, the, would be the word picture here. So let me just pause. Does anybody have any questions or comments about anything? I'm looking forward to the break, whether it's choir, bells, whatever, but I'm sure I miss this. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, it is a joy. It is a joy, and we'll... Uh, We'll keep going, and when fall, fall kicks up, we'll keep, we'll keep rolling. Um, the thing I would just like to say to you is Christians often feel the guilt of I don't do enough, or I said the wrong thing, or I didn't say anything, or I didn't say enough. And I would say to you, Please don't let those things bother you. Um, 
our life of prayer is a great place for us to deal with the things we see around us. And the, th- the things that are happening in people's lives that we can't control, our prayers to our Lord are precious. And just pray. Ask the Lord to help you and to take care of the people around you. And the Lord hears your prayers. He loves you. You are his. You are precious. And... Um, Those prayers do not return void, but accomplish the purpose for which the Lord has set. Yes? Um, Just along that, you know, argues as being blinded and Saul being blinded, the outcomes were completely different. So, you know, Saul went up, obviously, to write that the New Testament. We don't know what happened to Archimedes, but that's not for us to determine. Right. What happened? Yeah. Did you have more you were going to say to that? Nope. That's really good. I'm glad you... Yeah, thank you. I'm really glad that you brought that up because um, one thing to, to just mention is we don't know what happens with Bar-Jesus, but we, you know, we assume and we think the Lord probably continued his work, but it was a different work for Bar-Jesus than it would have been for Sergius Paulus. And for, like the hand of the Lord is, you can jot this down and look at it later. First Samuel twelve fifteen, I believe, also uses the language of the hand of the Lord. And yeah, so that's used there too. But the hand of the Lord is often used. Sometimes it's harsh, but the hand of the Lord is sometimes what is needed to draw the person away from the darkness. And so, you know, you just... And so that's the thing, right? The church prays for everyone, right? We pray for those in the church, those in need. We also pray for the world. We pray for those who are in darkness that the light of Christ may shine and dispel the darkness. Yeah. I'm thinking about the guilt that you Christians we have. And it's like I struggle with that sometimes. Like, oh gosh, can you be a or whatever? And like thinking about Jesus' life on earth, he didn't solve world hunger. He fed those in front of him when he could. Good point. Um, it's not like he came and everything was peaceful and wonderful. I mean, and if anybody could, it would have been Jesus. Yep. And it's not like every person he encountered, he saved and got them to believe. I mean, so often he didn't. And he knew when to say, okay, I need to move on. And when to say, maybe somebody who's figuring on the edge, when to take the time in. But it's not like Jesus, in his time, solved every problem he encountered or sought out problems that he wasn't even Right, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we talk, you hear this language, right? You know, bloom where you're planted or, right? Like, the Lord puts you in a place, in a specific locale. And so, 
let the love and the mercy of Christ be local, localized, right? I mean, that's what Jesus does with us, right? He localizes his grace and his love and his mercy at an altar. And we are seasoned with this love and this holiness and it becomes us. And then we go into this, we go out to this place where we live and, uh, and, and then the sweet fragrance of Christ emanates in that locale. And uh, it's all the Lord's doing, and we give thanks for that. So, all right, let's go ahead and close with prayer and the benediction. O oh God, through the humiliation of your Son, you raised up the fallen world. Grant to your faithful people, rescued from the peril of everlasting death, perpetual gladness and eternal joys through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace.